as if we'd been sitting on that front porch the previous afternoon. She said, yeah, boy, that African, he say his name was Kente. He called the guitar cold. He called the river Canby Belongo. He said he was chopping wood for to make himself a drum when they cost him. And all the rest of the story told in her own colorful way. It was like echoes from boyhood. The difference was I was no longer a little boy just sitting behind my grandmother's chair ingesting the story, but I was now at least a fledgling writer, and I was taking notes of everything she said as best I could. And when Cousin Georgia finished, in the way that elderly people often can, she said something that would later become extremely meaningful to me. It was at this time extremely motivational to me. She looked at me and she said something about those who had been on that front porch with her and me. She spoke of them not as if they were dead, as I had been tending to think of them, but rather as if they maybe had just walked off stage somewhere behind a curtain or up in a balcony somewhere. She said, boy, your sweet grandma and all the rest of them, they sitting up there watching you. Now you get on out of here and do what you got to do. It was vague, it was amorphous, and yet it was supremely driving as a force. I didn't know quite how to translate it, but I went on back to New York, and the more I got to thinking about it, what is it I have, quote, got to do? And I got to thinking, of course, about the story. That was the trunk, the genesis of it all. And it seemed to me that the clues to doing something lay in those strange phonetic sounds always attributed to that Africa speaking to his daughter, telling her the identification of things. And the more I thought about it, the seeming thing I had to do was get to lots of Africans because many tongues were spoken in Africa. These sounds were obviously fragments of some tongue. Living in New York, I began to do what seemed to be natural to me. I began to go up to the United Nations lobby about quitting time. People were rushing off the elevators rushing to get home. It was not hard to spot Africans. And every time I could, I'd stop one. And I'd tell him my little sounds. I suppose in a couple weeks, I'd stopped a couple dozen Africans, each and every one of which took a quick look, quick listen, and took off. And I can understand that with me trying to tell them some alleged African sounds in a Tennessee accent. That wasn't going to get it. I have a friend a master researcher, his name George Sims, who knew what I was trying to do, and he came up to me with a listing of people who in the academic world are known for their knowledge of African linguistics. I looked at the little thumbnail notes that he had with each one of them, and the one who intrigued me was a man born and reared in Belgium, partially educated there, then we had moved to England, he had attended the University of London, and he had done finally his graduate work at the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. Then what particularly impressed me was he had done post-doctoral work living in African villages, studying the tongues that spoken there, and then writing a book in French originally called La Tradition Orale. It was the oral tradition. And I found a man was in this country. His name, Dr. Jan Vancina. He was at the University of Wisconsin. And I just felt this tremendous compulsion to see this man. I got on the phone, person to person, and after a while I'm talking with him. 
He was a little puzzled by what I was trying to convey, but he was gracious. He said he'd be glad to talk with me. And it was one Thursday that I got on a plane in New York, curious about a few phonetic sounds, some syllables that had been passed down across generations of my maternal family. And with no idea in the world what I was about to get into. That evening in the Vancina's living room, I sat with him and I told him everything that I could muster about this story, every shred, every nuance. And it went on for quite a time. And then Dr. Vancina, oral historian that he is, began to question me. He was particularly interested in the physical transmission of the story from one to the next generation. And it drew late, and he asked if I'd spend the night at their home, and I was happy to do that. And then the following morning, when I looked back upon it, it seems to be a miracle too. Dr. Vincina came down before breakfast. He had a very serious expression on his face, and he said, I wanted to sleep on it. Then he told me he already had been on the telephone with colleagues of his, like the eminent Africanist Dr. <laughs> Philip Curtin and others, and they felt it certain that the collective sounds which had been kept down across the generations of my family represented the Mandinka tongue. I had never heard the word. I was told now that was the sound, or the tongue rather, spoken by Mandingo people. And then he began to guess translate. He said that there was a sound that meant cow or cattle. Another meant the baobab tree, generic in West Africa. He came finally to the sound I had told him, as had been the case, that they had said that this African always would point to this stringed instrument and say, ko. And I was told now that almost surely this related to an instrument old in the Mandingo culture called the kora. He came finally to the most involved of the sounds which had been passed down across the generations. I had told him, as had been the case, that this African, they had said always, in Spotsylvania County, Virginia, would point to a river, the Mattapani River, with his daughter in tow, and say to her, Kambi Bolongo. And I was told now that in Mandinka, without question, the word Bolongo translated to large, moving, running stream, such as a river, and that preceded by the word Camby, it very probably meant Gambia River. I had never heard of such a place. It was a work of short order for Dr. Vancina to point out to me on a map the Gambia, a long, narrow country midway down the West African coast, jutting into Senegal, bordered on three sides by Senegal, fronting on the ocean, bisected by the Gambia River. And I just had all of a sudden this enormous compulsion to go to that place in Africa. But at the same time, it was an ambivalent kind of feeling because I didn't know, I hadn't thought about Africa, and I really, you don't just pop up in Africa, and I didn't know what to do. I knew I had to find somebody to help me, shepherd me, go with me. I finally wound up in Washington again in uh, 
various lists I could find at the State Department who referred me to various embassies, and I found that there were a considerable number, several thousands of African students in this country. And then I found that at that time, from that tiny country called the Gambia, there were exactly 12. And the one who physically was closest to me was at a place called Hamilton College in upstate New York, Clinton, New York. His name was Ibu Manga. I got to that campus one Thursday afternoon around 3.30 and practically snatched Ibu Manga out of an economics class. It took a while before I was able to get visas and stuff together and then to get us on Pan American. And we flew to Dakar, Senegal. And then we got a light plane and flew over to Yundum, which serves the Gambia. We got in a van and went to the city of Bathurst, it was called at the time. Now it's Banjo, the capital city of the Gambia. Ibu Manga took me to his home. His father, Al-Haji Malik Manga, the people in that section are predominantly Muslim historically and today. Al-Haji Manga was most hospitable, and he, when he spoke with me, he got together three men whom he knew to be very knowledgeable of the history of the country, and I met with those men in the lounge of the little Atlantic Hotel. And there they sat in their robes, their pillbox hats, their shoes that with the, the toe kind of turns up and the heel is out. And I'm telling them, as I had told Dr. Van Cena, every shred, every nuance of that story which I first had heard as a little boy on a western Tennessee front porch. And these Africans listened most intently. When I finish with the story, it again gives me the quivers to reflect upon how tissue thin at times have been the hinges on which this whole adventure has swung. Because what these Africans reacted to was of that whole story a mere two syllables. They said, now there may be significance that your forefather said his name was Kinte. I said there was nothing more clear in the whole of the story or explicit than the pronunciation of his name. And they said, well, now look here. In our country, our oldest villages tend to be named for those families, those clans, which settled those villages centuries ago. And they got a little map and showed me, look, here is the village of Kinte Kunda. And another, here's the village of Kinte Kunda Janeya, and some other places with a Kinte prefix. Then they told me something of which I had never had the slightest dream, not the slightest comprehension. They told me how history has been kept for centuries in Africa. They told me about the existence of very old men who are called griots. It's spelled G-R-I-O-T-S. As they described them, griots seem to be like walking, living archives. They told me of men who are in a line of griots. The senior griot would be about late 60s, early 70s. Beneath him would be men at about decade intervals younger, down to a teenage boy. And that the boy would grow on up mature, hearing the story of a large family clan told over and again, until he began to tell parts of it, and a little more and a little more, until that boy one day hopefully would be the senior griot, able to talk for sometimes in some big family cases, as much as two days without once repeating himself, telling in the most meticulous detail, in great, great microscopic detail, 
the story of a plan over a period of century or more. And when I heard such a thing, I was just staggered. And then they explained to me why I was so staggered. They said that I had come from this culture here where we live, where, as they put it, we have become so conditioned by the, quote, crutch of print that we have almost forgotten what the human memory is capable of if, in fact, it is trained to know such things. And then these men told me that my forefather, having insisted that his name was Kente, they would see what they could do to help me. And I came back to this country enormously bewildered. I just didn't know what to make of it. I was confused because the people whom I had met there in Africa was so at odds with all I had ever had as my own impression of Africa and its peoples and its culture. Like most of us here, my whole or uh, my main impressions of Africa, of the physically second largest continent on the face of Earth, had been derived from Tarzan, from Jungle Jim, or things of that nature. And seriously, that was really the most I knew. And I was confused, and it seemed now I had to learn more. And I began a voracious period of reading. Everything I could lay my hands on about Africa, West Africa, particular circus slavery. I can remember reading all day until my eyes hurt. And then sitting on the edge of my bed at night, looking at a map of Africa, studying how the countries interrelated physically, one against the other, within the other, so forth. And weeks passed. And then a letter came that I should come back as soon as I could. I wanted very much to come back, but I didn't have any money. I didn't have any way to get any money that I could see, certainly not the kind of money that involved going back. I had spent everything I had. And All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to stop it right here. And we're going to meet back up with another episode. I hope you're enjoying it as well as I am. I'm enjoying listening to it now.